What's up, podcast listeners? On today's episode, I've got Dr. Lindsay Blom. I'll let her introduce herself in just a minute, but this is a really good one if you are wondering what the importance of actually working on your mental game is. She explains it perfectly, why it's important, why it's something you should focus on, why it's something you just should put at least some of your mental effort towards. Um, she breaks it down pretty good of uh, if you're spending this much time practicing, then why aren't you at least spending a hefty chunk of that time you know, dedicated to uh, working on your mental game? So uh, enjoy this episode, take something from it, get some value out of it. And if you do, I would love it if you subscribed on Apple Podcasts or gave the podcast a review. It helps other people discover the podcast. Um, And without further ado, we'll get right into the episode. Thanks for listening. All right, so uh, maybe you could just start by saying your name and uh, maybe your title and what you're doing right now. Sure, sure. Um, I am Dr. Lindsay Blom. I am a faculty member at Ball State University and the graduate coordinator for our master's program in sport and exercise psychology. And I am a certified mental performance consultant through the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. That's right. I was looking through your um, bio on Ball State's website. Um, I mean, it sounds like you've got I mean, extensive experience in this field. Um, what are, you know, maybe give us a, a background of where you started, maybe in sports and maybe how you got to where you are now. Sure, sure. So I uh, grew up in the early years of soccer when it was just becoming something that uh, the U.S. was catching on to. And so at that time, I actually played at seven years old, play 11 v 11 soccer. I don't know if you know much about soccer, but um, these days, nobody at under the age of 14 plays full sighted um, because they learned that that was way too big for um, youth. So at that time, I started playing soccer and just fell in love with it and continued um, through club and um, through college. And I think that's when I realized, and I didn't, I didn't have a name for it at that time, but realized that, you know, my mind really controlled my performance much more than I thought. Um, And in particular, I had trouble with recovering from mistakes and I had trouble staying present focused. I would either get, you know, too excited about the score and what was going to happen at the end or, and then lose focus or too worried about the score and what was going to happen at the end had increased anxiety. So I could start telling that something was happening and certainly then in soccer too, some of the cohesion components were important coach athlete relationships um, were important as well. And so I got, went to school and I, in Georgia Southern university to play soccer um, down in Statesboro, Georgia. And at that point I knew I wanted to do something in psychology, but wasn't sure. And still didn't have a name, you know, of sports psychology that I knew about yet and took an undergraduate sports psychology class. And that's when it really um, kind of came together. And I think the one reason that I really liked sports psychology coming out of the psychology field in general is because it really focuses on people excelling and thriving where so much of other psychology, especially 20 years ago, focused on disease and what was wrong with individuals. And so this was a field that really resonated with me because it was just making people better rather than focusing on the negative aspects. So I stayed at Georgia Southern um, and 
completed my master's degree there and played a little bit of um, semi-professional soccer down in Jacksonville. They had a W League, which is what the, the semi-professional level was called for women at that point. And then went on to pursue my, master, uh, my doctoral degree at West Virginia University in sport and exercise psychology. And through this time from undergrad and on up, I did a lot of coaching, youth coaching. Um, and that was when I could kind of practice some of these things that I was learning um, as well as with playing too, and really enjoy the coaching component um, and working with youth. And then um, from West Virginia, I went to the University of Southern Mississippi for my first faculty job in coaching education, and then to Ball State, where I've been for 12 years now. Um, and so I think one my the specialties that I really enjoy from a research standpoint and from a consulting standpoint is working with youth and working with coaches. And I think that came out of my experience as well as um, my, my interest in coaching, just that age group. And I feel like if we can tap into helping them set their, um, you know, mental capacity and their mental skills and get them a foundation at a young age, that it will help them, you know, in all aspects of life, but certainly as they get become more elite and focused on their sport. Um, and then I think that the coach athlete relationship and the coach climate, the climate that the coach creates is crucial um, to setting up athletes for success, um, just as humans, but certainly then in our sport as well. So I think that's why I've gravitated to really kind of understanding those components even more than um, just a broad field. Yeah. And something you said for you early on kind of resonated with me, um, where you said you, you had a realization with your own, uh, when you were playing soccer and how you, you realized you weren't staying present and you weren't, you know, you had bad self-talk and these kind of things. Uh, and, and it seems like in my conversations with people in these fields, like yourself, um, some people realized, you know, after they, after they got done playing, then they realized what could have like, if only I had realized what I know now back then, but you did realize, you know, early on. So maybe, um, you know, who introduced these ideas to you? Did you kind of just happen on them on your own? You started asking questions or you were curious or something. How did you happen on these sports psychology related topics when you were younger? That's a really good question. You know, I think that, um, I don't remember, I'm sure there were some specific moments that people said things that um, triggered different ideas in my mind, but I don't have a specific moment or individual or book um, that, that resonated. I think because I was, there was something about either my personality or something else that was happening that I was interested in psychology early on. So I think in high school, I really started looking at um, or just from a general psychology standpoint, like why things happened. And in general, I'm fairly introspective. So I think that that just those two things put together um, kind of wanted me to help figure out what was what was going on and some explanation for that. I think the other part is that um, I am a hard worker, but not that skilled in soccer. So I think I had to figure out ways to continue to develop and compete for the next level. Um, and so I think that that's when I started figuring out, like maybe it was because I could, I could do something with my mind that allowed me to push harder and further something than my opponent. So I think that it was a little bit organic in that nature, but maybe a little bit because of the climate and personality and, um, just other areas that I was interested in at the time. 
Yeah, sure. So how how did you work on it then? Was it through help of a coach or a mentor of some kind? Yeah, so I think that was probably mostly actually my dad. He um, is just a, a very, um, has a very positive outlook on life in general. And so I think he actually probably spent a lot of time, you know, coming home from, from events, helping me reframe what occurred and not knowing what he was doing specifically at that moment. I think that was what taught me to, you know, there's obviously different ways I could look at this. And one way of looking at this made me feel worse and another way made me feel better. Um, and then ultimately then once I felt better, I played better. So I think that that was maybe just kind of, it started, I could, I could feel different when um, I use a different approach. So I think probably some conversation with my parents um, is what I'm, I'm the oldest um, in my family. And so my siblings played soccer as well. And so I think then maybe some conversations eventually with them. Um, but I think probably talking through it um, with my dad and car rides home probably is what did it the most. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a huge role in, I mean, now that you're working with youth, I mean, I'm sure you see that as what the parents do and how they interact with their kids is um, perhaps the most important relationship in their life. You know, you're able to step in and, and be a, you know, a proxy to the parents, but really if the parents can form the conversation in the right way, the, the youth athlete will be, you know, the pace of their improvement will be so much faster, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We, I, I have done some work on parent athlete relationships and parent sideline behaviors um, and do some parent education work and do feel that they are crucial to um, creating a positive experience, which doesn't always equal success, but positive experience is ultimately what we're going for. Um, and success is a bonus, I think on there and performance success. And so I think that, um, and, and you know, parents certainly are are paying attention to what they're doing in and out of sport. But I think sometimes what we do while we're watching sport with our children is a different setting than almost any other setting. Because typically we're not watching our kids perform at school. We're not watching other things happen. And so by being present while it's happening in a public setting so others can be judging our kids which also doesn't happen like in a school setting necessarily and then sport in general increases our um our arousal levels that now we've kind of taken you know the trifecta of um, emotion that then is put into the setting and then you add the fact that the parent can't do anything about it um, that it just is it's a challenge and so then for that the parents to then kind of almost debrief outside of working with their child how they've just experienced and then be ready to have the right words depending on how their child is ready to talk about it it is a complex thing but really crucial to setting up a, a strong environment mm, that's exactly right um so to to kind of transition into your current work and you know maybe like the nitty-gritty of what you do on a daily basis is it are you you know having um athletes into your office and talking to them like in a counseling kind of format or how does that work for you sure sure so my main daily role is um really mentoring supervising and teaching the graduate students who are doing some of that work so i um spend a lot of time in supervision session sessions with them individual and group re reviewing um 
film and their audio about working with clients, helping them prepare for sessions. So a lot of the work now is kind of like teaching the students. Um, I also probably do, I don't know, um, a few hours a month of consulting specifically on my side that's separate from my work at Ball State. And most of the time that's focused on youth athletes or um, coaches um, in the work that we do. And so, but in the, in the general setting at Ball State, we work a lot with the athletes that are on campus. We also work with um, performing artists, um, students on campus, um, the music department and um, ROTC as well. Um, the military is actually a really um, big employer of master's level sports psychologists. So, uh, so, sorry, sports psychology consultants. So a lot of our students are doing work with the military as well. So we try to spread out our interests beyond just um, the traditional athletic population. Um, but yeah, so we have, we have a lab where we have students, um, clients come in who are community members as well as we do work with the local youth in our community as well as student athletes and other um, performers come to our office so a lot of work is done individually um, we also do work in group and team settings um, so we might plan sessions where we would go actually to the locker room or go out to the field um, or go over to the music studio and do work in that setting. Sometimes there's one consultant, sometimes there's two student consultants, depending on the size of the group that happens there. And so that um, oftentimes the best setting is for a group or team to have both options going individual work um, as well as group work we have found. Um, so, and then, the third idea would be then to be doing some work with the coaching staff or leaders of the group as well. And so right, we're, we're a, always working on building new partnerships too. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 that's okay. Yeah. It's, it's a holistic, let's, let's get the individual player, let's, or athlete, let's get the, um, the team of all the athletes together. And then let's also inform the coaches. And like you said, you, maybe you're not doing it, um, on a daily basis, but like you said, you have done with the parents as well. So it's a holistic from every angle, kind of building a team around every individual athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And when I do um, community-based work with youth specifically, I'll usually bring in, so that in those kind of settings, I'm not typically working with the coaches, but I am working with the parents. So typically we'll have the parent come in at the beginning of the session, talk with them a little bit about, you know, what they think is happening or what they're observing. I typically try to use the word observing rather than think. Um, tell me, you know, what you're observing. And then the, the youth athlete and I will, will do some work. And then at the end of the session, I'll have the youth athlete kind of summarize what we did in their words to their parents. Because like you mentioned at the beginning, if the parents aren't helping with the environment, um, then that hour session isn't very useful. So we do really use a joint effort, especially with the youth. Yeah. And, and something you said while you were talking about, um, you know, the parents and their, their aid in the youth development or the athletic development, um, and in your own kind of looking back on your past, did, when you, when you look back at your realizations you had with the psychological side and the mental side of soccer or athletics in general, do you, do you remember having the terms to define it then, or are you the, you know, the PhD now looking back and giving it those definitions? That's a good, that's a good question. I think that I did not have the, the words to describe what was going on. I think I had the, the feelings and the emotions and the outcomes, but not, not real words to describe what was happening. I think that was probably what was 
interesting and continued my soccer career a little bit was learning about that while I was still playing competitive soccer at the college level, that I was taking some courses I could learn things that I could implement right away. Um, and then I recently picked up, when I turned 40, I picked up tennis. And it's been a lot of fun to um, use what, everything that I know now, as you kind of mentioned, currently in the setting to be you know, a better tennis player than I really am by skill because of some of these um, techniques. I even do have some comp- some opponents sometimes that say that it's an unfair advantage mm. because I have that background. Right. Um, we play against each other. So it's almost like a, a second life that now I can use what I know um, in, in my sport. But I don't think I had the words to answer your yeah. original question. Yeah. And that's, it's funny you say it that way. It's, it's an unfair advantage, but it's not like um, I mean, just, yes, you do have an advantage over some that you've, you know, continued education, master's, uh, doctorate, you've, you've kept that going, but it's not, it's only an unfair advantage if it's inaccessible to every athlete, but yeah. you know, the, the person you're playing against has the ability. I mean, it might be harder to find a mental coach than a, you know, a, a tennis pro that can teach the technique side of it. But I mean, you probably know this, the, um, would you say the, the mental side of coaching is increasing in prevalence? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think as athletes, as we have more technology and we know more about um, equipment and things of that nature, that that starts to level the playing field a little bit um, on skill level. And so then what's left is the mental side. So then coaches have to pick that up to be able to stay at the top. Right. And um, it's funny you mentioned tennis and sports psychology. I just, just yesterday started reading the book, The Inner Game of Tennis. Have you read yeah. that? I have. Yep. Good one. Yeah. That one, I mean, it's good so far. And I, I know the general premise, um, but I, I do wonder, because I don't know what um, Timothy Galway, you know, his um, education level, but do you, and I know you're not doing as much one-on-one yourself uh, of counseling or, you know, helping, you know, actually doing one-on-one, you're more overseeing people that do do it, but do you, do you have like a general method that these sessions go by? Is it um, kind of learn from the player and then respond with certain tools to help? Is that kind of how it goes? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I teach our students that look at is there's this, this continuum of does a consulting session look more um, kind of practitioner led where the practitioner is kind of guiding the questions and the, the movement of the session versus to the other end where it's very um, client-based, you know, where the, the individual is focusing on um, what their story is and the practitioner is listening. And I would say that over the years, I've become more client-centered um, where I'll ask the general question and then kind of have them tell me their story. And then I'll, I'll follow up with different things. You know, oftentimes I'll, I'll say things like, you know, it sounds like, or I'm wondering if, and then let, and, you know, then finish the statement and let them kind of react to, oh, oh, no, that's not, or I haven't thought about that way, or yes, that's what my dad says too, or, you know, different things like that that sometimes may be this, the next level below what they're thinking. And then I usually try to make sure that sometime in, in each session, especially the first couple as we're building relationships, that they tell me what things were would be like if they were ideal. 
Um, you know, sometimes they're coming in and they're so focused on the things that are wrong that they don't, um, they don't have a chance to focus on what's ideal. And so I, once they start telling me that, then that actually is what sets up our goals for the sessions. Um, because then I can, they can really, t- you know, really tell me what, what that experience will look like holistically when they feel like they're in their ideal setting beyond, you know, just winning or being successful at that, at that point. Um, and so having them tell me that, and then I can also at that moment, as they're typically, I'm, a, I'm a, probably every time I've ever asked this question is I ask that question, you can see the, the individual relax. You can see them feel joyful. You can see them just kind of almost visualize this, this glorious moment. And then I'll, I'll say, so that's the feeling we want you to have when, we, when you perform. And so it does twofold. It sets up our goals, well, threefold. It helps them get to the point of what they want to be like. And then it helps them feel in the moment that right there with me, what that feeling is that we want to hold on to and get them to there most often. And so that is kind of um, the approach that I use you know, most often is making sure while we're talking about often what's not going well, we have some moment of what would it be like if it was going well in every session so they can hold on to that feeling and continue it um, as often as possible. Yeah, always um, kind of keeping both sides of the coin of, okay, yes, this is in the past and let's find ways to, you know, accept and move on. But also let's, we need to keep our eyes looking forward to the goal and, you know, how can we accomplish that through what we work on right now? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, I am interested in people in this field and that have expertise in this field who have been in it a long time and, and the kind of dichotomy of people that have never been to a mental coach or a sports psychologist, and they've only ever taken, you know, from, you know, my field with golf specifically, um, you know, swing lessons and technique based lessons. What would you say to someone who has never, you know, paid attention or focused on the mental side and never been to a mental coach? What would you say to them is like, this is why you should. Yeah, that's a good question. So my my general approach to that um, is you know, to ask them um, what percent of their sport they think is mental. Um, and you know, most of them at the very minimum would give me a 50% kind of thing. Most of them higher. And then I'll say, so in your week, how many hours do you practice? You know, let's say someone says 10. And I say, so if it was 10 and you tell me mental um, – is at least 50% of your game. Does that mean you're spending at least five hours on the mental side and this big eyes of like, uh, no. And so then we'll talk about, okay, well maybe you're doing a little bit, maybe it's built in a little bit to your, um, to your physical routine, but could you be, you know, increasing it? What else could you be doing? Why would you not be doing it if it's such a part of, important part of your game? And that usually gets them thinking about, um, about that question about why. And then based on the why we can figure out, you know, what might be the next step to, to, to increase it. Um, so that usually is gets their attention. Um, and then the other one I sometimes talk about is to have them kind of think through a moment where they didn't perform the way they thought and what they thought was a difference. Um, and usually it comes back to some sort of mental component. Um, and so they've almost answered their question themselves with, um, well, that's what the difference is. So and those two things usually get them thinking enough. Um, and then usually it, it comes down to some, some barriers that perceived barriers that we have to work through in order to get them to really be open to learning about it in some way. Yeah. And, um, 
I, I think you said it perfectly. When given the chance to reflect on it, people naturally realize how how important the mental game was. Because if you, you know, I I do a thing where I kind of pay attention to um, PGA Tour players and their kind of post round interview, and they rarely talk about their technique and what they physically did wrong. It's usually, yeah, I, you know, I let, I let the pressure get to me. I, I started thinking about, you know, winning. I started thinking how, how much I need to, you know, make a few birdies coming in. And, um, and those interviews are almost always entirely mental. And yet the next week when they go back to practice, you know, they focus you know, like you said, not 50%, but 10, 5% on the mental side of what it would take to overcome those barriers that they just encountered. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what would you, you know, kind of as we're uh, nearing towards the end, what would you tell someone that's listening, um, as a good, like, not a tip, but like, what's something that they could work on mentally i know you you have no background info on that person you you know nothing about them but if you could say just as a general this would be good for the general population to work on and focus on mentally uh this is what i would say yeah i think there's two things that come to mind that that i try to use just on a daily basis with with my own life and whatever performing i need to do that day and i think the first one is that um, that our thoughts directly impact our action. And so as we say something out loud, as we think it, and if it's not what we hope is happening, we are setting up ourselves for what we don't want to happen to happen. So if I start my day with this gonna be a long day, then I've already kind of allowed my mind and my body to assume it's gonna be a long day rather than a productive day or a positive day or energizing day. So really being very careful of our language that we use to describe how we want our activity, performance day, task, whatever it may be, to go. And and really, you know, and I I know people talk a lot about self-talk and things of that nature, but really paying attention to the specific language that is used um, for ourselves each day and being cognizant of that. And little changes can be drastically um, effective um, throughout the day, I have a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old, and we, we talk about that every morning when we wake up about the language that they're using that's setting them up um, for the day. And the other one I think is really important is to release the judgment of mistakes. Um, again, whatever that may be, that we need to reflect on them, and then we have to release them because if we continue to dwell dwell on them, that energy from the mistake um, affects the next thing we do. Um, and so really kind of hearing them, thinking about them, reflecting them, and then moving on. So being very non-judgmental about them and just more technical about the mistake um, because then we can recover faster and learn from them and get back to a strong performance rather than spending time you know, in the mistake. Mm, super practical. Uh, anybody listening, that's what you should do. Do those two things. <laughs> um, so just just to wrap up, what would you say percentage wise, most athletics or most sports are percentage mental and physical? Oh gosh, that's a really tough question. 
You know, I, I don't know every sport, so I have to just make a statement that is in general probably about about our life and um, everything that we do in our life. And I would say, you know, it probably 70%. I think that 70% of almost every task that we do has um, a strong mental component that will affect our outcome of that task. Um, from non-performance based tests, non-sport tests to you know, the highest level of sport that ultimately comes down to, to that moment. Because usually whoever we're competing against has trained physically at a similar level. So that no longer separates us, um, whether it's a beginning level or a advanced level. And so I think to be successful, that 70% is where I would put that number. Mm, uh, you you did well. That's that's always an unfair question, but you did good answering it. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Dr. Blom. I appreciate your time and um, how much help you're going to give to the listeners. Uh, it's uh, very generous of you. It's my pleasure. Um, thanks for, for having me on and I appreciate your time as well. All right. Thanks for listening. And if you made it this far, you must have got something from this episode. So if so, I would love it if you subscribed on Apple Podcasts, left a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps people discover this. And if you really are feeling froggy, I would love it if you shared this podcast with at least one other person, someone that you think needs help with their mental game. Every time I tell someone I'm a mental coach, they go, oh boy, I need that in my life and I need that for my golf game. So something tells me you know someone who needs help with their mental game. So just have them listen to an episode. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff in here. There's a lot of so-so stuff, of course. I'm not perfect. I don't put out perfect stuff, but um, surely something they can find will help them. So send this podcast over to someone else. I would love it if uh, they could get help from this as well as you. So thanks again for listening and we will catch you guys in the next one.